Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press the star than zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mester, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, um, Anna, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Liver Cancer Treatment Updates. I know many of you have waited a long time for this program to occur again with us to updates and things like that, so I'm really delighted to have all of you on the call today. This program is supported by Exelixis, Inc., and I want to thank them for their support of this program. And we have over 200 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States. And we also have, and for both urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Canada, India, Iraq, Lithuania, Nicaragua, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Ahmed Kassab. And Dr. Kassab is the John E. and Dorothy J. Harris Professorship in Gastrointestinal Cancer Research, Tenured Professor and Director, Hepatocellular Carcinoma Program, Director, MD Anderson HCC Spore, Editor-in-Chief, Journal of Hepatocellular Carcinoma, Department of Gastrointestinal Medical Oncology, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Kaseb will be addressing overview of liver cancer in the context of COVID-19 and variants, current standard of care, new and emerging treatment approaches, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's really now a great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kaseb. Thank you so much, Carolyn, and uh, everybody. It's a pleasure uh, to be back. Um, this has uh, become uh, one of the highlights for all of us to meet with you all and, and talk about hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, so today I'll uh, be talking to you about overview of liver cancer and the standard of care. And um, the first point I want to uh, go over is the um, liver cancer um, status in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. So, um, in the United States, at least, you know, with the emergence of the vaccination programs and, and so on, uh, the picture this year is much better than last year and, of course, the year before. So we have seen a lot of our patients uh, committing to getting vaccinated, not just the full vaccination, but the boosters as well. Even the second booster now, the are candidates for it, given the cancer diagnosis. So we have been seeing... Um, a lot of our patients going through it, and even those who get the um, um, uh, infection, they're not um, getting as sick. We don't see a lot of hospitalization or death related to that. Um, and in terms of uh, the um, um, uh, standard of care of hepatocellular carcinoma, I'm going to talk a little bit about how we manage this disease first before I talk about the new and emerging treatment approaches. So overall, uh, whenever we see our patient um, in clinic, the first question we always ask um, is, um, are we up against liver-only disease or metastatic disease? So if the answer is it is lim limited to the liver, liver-only disease, the second question is, um, is the liver healthy enough and the body functions are also normal with normal organ functions, good nutritional status? If the answer to all of that is yes, the liver function is excellent and the patient is in excellent shape, then there is always room for liver uh, um, tumor resection. So surgical approaches here are um, applicable, especially if the patient has one lobe only involved with the liver tumors. If it is in both lobes of the liver, even if the liver is healthy and the patient is in excellent shape, it is not possible to do surgical resection. So resection is only limited to patients with um, disease in the one side, only one lobe of the liver, and they have excellent liver and body functions and nutritional status. So I'm very happy that we have Dr. Bearden with us today to talk about that, of course, nutrition and hydration concerns. So how about patients with liver-only disease 
excellent liver functions and body functions and they are not candidates for surgery, then um, the next in line is localized therapies. And that will depend on the uh, size of the tumors. If the tumors are very small, less than three centimeters, we have room for ablation um, through heat. So that, that's radio frequency ablation or freezing through cryoablation or alcohol ablation. If the tumors are beyond three centimeters up to seven centimeters or roughly um, two and a half, three inches, then there is room for uh, what we call transarterial chemoembolization, meaning that we go from the groin up like having a heart cath, directly injecting chemotherapy inside of the tumor if the tumors are up to seven centimeters. So this is called TACE, T-A-C-E. If the tumors are larger than seven centimeters or multifocal tumors, um, then we go for the same catheter approach, but instead of injecting chemo, we inject radiation spheres or what we call yttrium 90 or Y90. And of course, there is always room for external beam radiation, radiation from outside the body if the tumors are limited to a specific area of the liver and it is safe to do so. So that's in patients with liver-only disease, limited to the liver, excellent liver functions and body functions, and yet they cannot go for surgery. How about patients with liver-only disease, but they have very poor liver reserve and they have advanced cirrhosis or scarring tissue in their liver. So obviously we cannot cut through the liver to remove the tumors, uh, even if it is limited to one side. In that case, we uh, check their eligibility for liver transplant. And for that, we have classic criteria called Milan criteria, developed in the city of Milan in 1996. One tumor up to five centimeters or three tumors less than three centimeters each. So they are very strict because tumors beyond those parameters, they tend to recur after transplant and become more aggressive. So if the patients are candidates for transplant, we go for it. If not, the same local therapy rules apply here, as we mentioned earlier. And um, finally, in patients with um, liver tumors that spread already outside the liver or invading the vessels, portal vein or hepatic veins or arteries, so it is invading the vessels, uh, in or outside the liver or spread outside the liver already. In that case, we go for what we call systemic therapy, meaning that we go for uh, drugs that are given by mouth or vein so they can go wherever blood goes. And I'm going to spend a few minutes here because that's where, you know, the uh, bulk of our um, uh, discussion will be around uh, those new and emerging treatment approaches along this line of systemic therapies. So since last year, we've had some exciting news for emerging studies that had uh, either finally reported and published their data or just press release. So um, the standard of care in the front line remained the same. Remember last year we talked about the immunotherapy combination in the front line therapy we use as front line defense for systemic therapy with immunotherapy drug called um, Tecentric um, and another drug called Avastin which cuts the blood vessels to the tumor. So immunotherapy has been really uh, emerging at the Ministry of Treatment, the most um, um, promising treatment approach because it is not as toxic as chemotherapy or targeted therapies. In the meantime, it stimulates our own immune cells to attack the tumors. And we know our liver cancer tumors are always surrounded by immune cells because the environment itself has got immune-rich cells because we always have either hepatitis in the background or some what we call NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis in fatty liver, for example, and metabolic syndrome. So this, those patients tend to have a lot of immune cells in the environment. So immunotherapy unleashes those um, immune cells, our own immune cells, are, uh, uh, to attack the tumors. So this is very promising and tolerable approach. And it's combined with targeted therapy to attack the blood vessels. So the first line of defense here is dysentric immunotherapy drug, which is um, a drug that targets the blood vessels. So, so these two drugs are still the uh, preferred um, line of therapy in HCC in the frontline setting. In patients who cannot get immunotherapy for any reason, they have autoimmune disease, for example, or they are not tolerating, then we go for other targeted therapies, uh, a drug called Linvima or Nexavar, oral drugs. And all of these drugs contain the tumors, try to slow them down 
and uh, prevent them from further spread. Unfortunately, they, uh, they don't um, make the tumors disappear, but they prolong our patient's survival. And then in the second line setting, those who got immunotherapy, we have other approaches for them with those drugs that target the blood vessels. There is also a couple of regimens, immunotherapy combinations together with immunotherapy that uh, we could use in the second line setting. And there is also emerging data about two immunotherapy drugs uh, that showed good results, positive results in the frontline setting, but they are not approved yet. So the bottom line is immunotherapy either alone or combined with other immunotherapy drugs or combined with other targeted therapy drugs that targets the blood vessels um, and um, cut the tumor blood vessels and prevent it from growing is really the main treatment approach that we follow. Um, for systemic therapy in hepatocellular carcinoma, and we've been seeing, you know, up to one-third of the patients with those combination therapies achieving tumor response, meaning that the tumors are shrinking. About 40 to 45% additional patients could have stable disease, so initially we could have either shrinkage or stabilizing the tumors, and the average time is about six to eight months until the tumors start to get resistant, and then we have to use another agent. So so bottom line is we have, <clears throat> we have a lot of um, drugs, immunotherapy, plus immunotherapy or plus targeted therapy, and we have data to support it um, to, used, uh, to be used in frontline setting, second-line setting, or even third. The last point I wanted to bring up to your attention is the increasing and important role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments in this environment of not only COVID-19 that is, you know, now even up, but also in general for those patients who cannot travel due to any reason, financial concerns, for example, and Dr. Misner will talk about this. So uh, in terms of the telehealth, it's really critical for us as patients and also physicians to know that it has its space and managing liver cancer patients, but not every patient could take the advantage of that because some patients still need to be seen in clinic to assist them clinically and examine them and make sure they are doing well. So televisits doesn't work for everybody. It could work for patients who are just there for very quick um, kind of checkup, those patients who had their tumors resected, for example, and the tumors are still uh, not visible in any scan, and they are cancer-free. So for those patients, we allow them to do telehealth visits. Also for patients who are very, very stable on certain drugs uh, for over a month or two-month period before between scans, we can allow them to have telehealth appointments. But there is a significant number of patients who still be need, uh, be, uh, need to be seen in clinic to make sure they are doing clinically well. Um, so, um, so that concludes my part today, and I'll be more than happy to answer any questions or concerns throughout the discussion. And uh, again, thank you very much for inviting me for this very exciting setting. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kassab, for really a, a superb, a stellar uh, presentation and overview of liver cancer and really setting the stage for today's program. Um, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. James Harding. Dr. Harding is Assistant Attending, Gastrointestinal Oncology Service, Early Drug Development Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Assistant Professor of Medicine, um, while at Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Harding will be addressing clinical trial updates, how research increases your treatment options, controlling treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, communicating with your healthcare team about your quality of life, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, discussion of open notes, and follow-up appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Harding. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to join Cancer Care today for this great program, and thanks to my colleagues who are presenting as well. Um, so Dr. Kassab uh, did an excellent overview of the treatment of hepatocellular carcinoma, uh, focusing on systemic therapies, uh, which has been evolving very quickly. Uh, and part of the way that this was able to be achieved is through clinical trial-based work. Clinical trials are investigations 
where we are uh, doing two things. Uh, one, are studying new drugs or new treatments for cancer. Uh, and the other is, uh, you know, studying um, uh, patients um, and their samples to understand more about cancers. So when we think about clinical trials, there are two approaches. One is what's called um, a non-therapeutic study. The other is called a therapeutic study. On a non-therapeutic study, this is where patients are being asked uh, to contribute their thoughts through surveys or their samples through blood draws, you know, stool, urine sampling, tissue biopsies, and blood biopsies to help us understand what it's like to be a patient with cancer, the patient experience, and to understand how does cancer develop. These non-therapeutic studies are very important uh, to advance the field and understand new things about cancer and its treatment. The second form of clinical trial is a therapeutic study. That's when we're asking a question, how can we make you know, cancer treatment better for patients, either by improving outcomes, reducing side effects, or proposing new ways of treating patients. And therapeutic studies can be further divided into phase one, two, and three. These are the general classes of clinical studies that seek to evaluate a new treatment. Phase one is when we're testing a drug for the first time to understand how safe it is. Phase two is when we have established a, a dose um, of a particular treatment. Um, we know that it is now safe. We're understanding that it's safe. We now want to see how effective it is. And phase three is when we compare our new investigational treatment to an old standard of care. Um, and we see phase one, two, and three clinical trials actually at all stages of liver cancer. Uh, I'll focus on the advanced or metastatic setting. Um, and here, what many clinical trials are trying to do are to take, you know, what Dr. Kassab has said, which is that we now know that we can treat um, uh, liver cancer with immune-based treatments, treatments that wake the immune system up uh, to have it fight cancer uh, with other combinations like antivascular therapy. We know that this is a, an effective treatment option, but it doesn't work for all patients. So many of the clinical trials that are in play today are looking at how can we make the established immune therapy combinations work better. This is the idea of taking um, a treatment that can help energize the immune system even more. And so on phase one and two studies, we're seeing vaccinations, uh, uh, cytokines, uh, uh, T-cell-based therapy, um, which is what's called adoptive cellular therapy, delivering you know, cells to help fight liver cancer, small molecules that are designed to help um, wake the immune system up or, or suppress uh, signals that suppress immune response uh, and a variety of other novel therapies. There are many of these studies uh, currently ongoing across the United States and the world. Um, phase three studies uh, are looking at comparing new combinations to standards. Uh, and Dr. Kassab uh, explained already, you know, the I Am Brave 150 study, which led to the approval of atezolizumab and bevacizumab um, and representing a standard of care. There was recently a phase three study called the Himalaya study that looked at a combination of the immunotherapies durvalumab and tremilimumab, uh, which was shown to be superior to serafinib alone. There are other combinations that we're still awaiting. Uh, so there is a study looking at a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, lenvacinib, in combination with pembrolizumab versus older therapies. We're anxiously awaiting those results. And in addition, these combinations, which Dr. Kassab have already said, um, some of which are FDA-approved, are now moving to earlier stages of disease. Perhaps we can use these as adjuvant therapies after surgery to prevent recurrence. Uh, perhaps we can use them prior to surgery to downstage uh, for effective surgery. Perhaps we can use them along with regional therapies to improve outcomes. Um, and this is really kind of the state of play of hepatocellular carcinoma right now. 
and I'm sure Dr. Kesseb would agree with me, it's changing very rapidly. Uh, so it's great that we have these at some frequency. Um, with regard to the other kind of questions proposed to me um, is, you know, managing symptoms and, you know, working with um, the doctor in so doing, you know, these diseases and their treatments can cause a number of different um, uh, symptoms for a patient. Can't, liver cancer, you know, can cause pain, uh, yellowing of the skin, retention of fluid, fatigue. Uh, these things are very important to convey to your primary care doctor, your primary oncologist, and the team. These things need to be addressed and may be able to be treated uh, and to manage symptoms appropriately. In addition, these immune-based treatments may wake the immune system up against cancer, that, but that it could also be woken up against your body. And there are a variety of side effects uh, that can occur that can become better and stopped with the right application of therapy. Likewise, the pill-based tyrosine kinase inhibitors or antivascular drugs can cause high blood pressure, some uh, times um, uh, gastrointestinal side effects, weight loss, um, and along with their clinical trial development, there have been a number of um, developments in how do we manage these symptoms and treat these uh, uh, potential complicating illnesses. So it's really important to bring up any side effects that you may be having or any symptoms that you have at your telehealth visit or in your in-person visit. Another way that you can kind of assure that you're communicating well to your team, and, and your team will certainly be happy to hear that, is through now this, um, what is it, literally an open note policy. Uh, this is where you actually see your notes, um, and you can see them in the medical record. Um, and so, you know, this is important. You can review this as well. And you have questions what's written in the note, you can bring that to your physician or your care team. may help to address that and uh, to improve that, um, uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you know, I, I found that to be useful, um, and sometimes I do get a question about that that does help clarify things to patients, families, um, and, and friends, uh, and healthcare providers. Um, so, um, I think the next topic was another form of toxicity, which is sort of the financial toxicity of these treatments. So, uh, you know, it, it's really important to know that these treatments can be very effective, but they can also be quite expensive, and insurers vary on what is covered and what proportion is covered. Um, and, um, you know, there's a recognition that they are expensive and, and that those are important questions. Um, and there are many ways to reduce costs, potentially, of therapy. Uh, many companies have um, access programs where, with certain forms of doubt, uh, the pricing of, of, of certain immunotherapies or targeted therapies may be reduced uh, and aid may be provided in that way. Many healthcare facilities have uh, patient financial services that can help guide patients through the complexity of our insurance systems um, uh, and um, uh, uh, reimbursement in that regard. Some centers do have philanthropic support that may be able to help patients. Um, and it is an important concern. And, you know, you, you can feel comfortable bringing that up with your provider, whether they're an academic center or a community center, and they should be able to help guide you in those discussions. Likewise, I do know uh, that organizations like Cancer Care and others may have, you know, information about these things as well. Um, and so um, I, I thank you again for your time and attention. I look forward to the discussion on the calls. I believe my section is complete and um, look forward to, for more discussion at the end. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Harding. That was really outstanding. Just a really, again, a superb presentation um, and uh, really addressing a lot of key issues that people are, are coping with. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. 
And Ms. Bairdon will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, nutrition and hydration are essential, not only in the tolerance to your treatment, but also to your quality of life. Um, your diet might be modified throughout your cancer treatment to assist with managing some side effects. Um, Side effects may include things like decreased appetite, um, reflux indigestion, maybe feeling full quickly, nausea, constipation, or diarrhea, vomiting, and maybe weight loss. A dietitian is a member of your healthcare team that can provide you your individual calorie, protein, and fluid goals um, to meet your unique needs. Um, they can also talk with you about modifying your diet as needed, um, oftentimes to address a lot of the side effects that, you, um, that, we, that I just mentioned or some side effects that you may be going through that are unique to you. Typically, there is an increased protein need um, in the presence of liver cancer, so your dietitian can also help you understanding how to accomplish those goals, what foods to focus on um, to help you meet those goals. But each person responds to treatment differently, and each of you are going to have your own unique path, but knowing the members of your healthcare team and how to reach them to help support you is really so very important. Um, in general, when we're talking about nutrition goals, not only is it just managing side effects to help you meet your nutrition needs, but it's also about monitoring um, your muscle mass, um, any weight changes that you experience, making sure that you're staying hydrated and, um, and that you're tolerating your diet well. Oftentimes I hear from patients, um, oh, I have a little bit of weight to lose. I just, you know, I'm not that worried about it. But one thing that we want patients to know is that it's really important, especially when you're going through treatment, that we keep an eye on how quickly weight loss occurs. Um, oftentimes if you lose weight quickly and it's um, unintentional, you can lose more lean muscle mass. Um, it isn't the fat loss that occurs as often, but more lean muscle mass. And the important thing about lean muscle mass is it gives you the um, energy, the endurance to do the things that you enjoy um, being up, being mobile. Um, if you lose that lean muscle mass um, in a significant quantity, oftentimes you're putting yourself at risk for falling, um, feeling weak, more fatigued than normal. There might even be a delay in wound healing if, if you have a wound that you're dealing with or even potentially a delay in treatment. So it's so important that, um, that you really work with your healthcare team. Now, there are medications to help with some of the side effects that I mentioned, and um, there's going to be a lot of people that you're going to talk with during your, your journey, but really having um, a, a way to keep track of the information that's provided, especially when we're talking about medications to address side effects. Um, it can be confusing. A lot of times um, folks will use, you, will use pill boxes, and sometimes they won't recognize which pills what. So, um, really understanding what medications use for what, when to take it, especially symptoms like nausea and constipation and diarrhea. Um, those things can be managed. We just have to make sure that all of the parts are being um, utilized. So when we talk about some of the side effects, you know, hydration becomes more and more of a conversation, especially with things like diarrhea and constipation and even nausea. But maintaining your hydration is very important. And oftentimes when your intake is less, your as far as food goes, your fluid intake is usually, usually less. And so it's important to be mindful of that. Most patients need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day, and a fluid is things like water, milk, juice, um, Gatorade, those are all options that will hydrate you. And sometimes some treatments can require um, a little bit more fluid. So again, knowing your, your course and knowing what your needs are are very important. So um, communication is, is really at the heart of all of this. In closing, there are several of us on your healthcare team dedicated to helping support you. And please know how to reach us. And um, I'm going to turn the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thanks so much, Diana. That was an excellent presentation. Thank you so much. And um, I'm just going to say a few words about the services that Cancer Care offers. Um, so Cancer Care is a national organization. 
and we provide a host of services. And one of the services we offer are financial, um, addressing financial concerns that people may have. And so, um, so some of those, so we do offer, so we have a Hope Line, and it's an 800 number, or you can visit our website and post your question. But usually people call our Hope Line in the United States, and, um, and they usually um, get to speak to one of our oncology social workers. We have 45 of them and they will address your questions. So anyone having financial concerns in the treatment of their liver cancer can call our Hope Line, and our staff will be more than helpful, more than willing to help you. And I think as Dr. Harding said, your healthcare team also consists of many different people. So there is your medical oncologist, surgeon, surgical oncologist. There are um, oncology nurses, oncology social workers. There are patient navigators, financial navigators. So there's a host of people. So if you mention to your doctor that you're having financial concerns, they will connect you also with someone at the institution you're being treated who also could offer you help. But you also, and you can get help from many places. You also can contact Cancer Care and indicate that you're having some financial concerns. And we, we don't offer, we offer practical financial assistance and we also have a co-payment assistance program. So if it's issues with the payment of any medication you're taking, uh, sometimes our co-pay foundation can assist with that. And if they can't, they'll refer you to a foundation that does. So um, please be aware of that. Um, we also offer support services from our oncology social workers, and we have a number of online support groups. And we also have um, uh, a number of publications that we have, and of course these workshops. We also have a pet assistance program for people who have a cat or a dog that they're not able to walk the dog or get um, or change the little box or purchase food for their um, uh, for their cat or dog. Um, uh, we have a program to assist with that as well. And for those of you who are, ha we have a case management group, and they will help you if we don't have the resource. So for people who are suffering from food insecurity or not enough money for food or for your mortgage or mortgage payments or rent payments. Um, our housing issues, um, our case management team will take you virtually to a place that will be able to help you and stay with you until you get support. And often the support may come from the city you live in or from a regional or national organization. Um, so whatever your need is, you can go ahead and call us because if we don't have it, we'll, we'll connect you to a place that does. And we also have a coping circles, which are small groups of people who discuss um, some of their um, you know, concerns and questions led by an oncology social worker. And now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask our operator to bring all of our speakers on board. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, and so some of you already posted questions, but I'm going to ask our um, Anna to explain to you how to queue up for questions. And again, we'll take as many of your questions as possible. Anna? Yes, ma'am. If you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. A voice prompt on the phone line will indicate when your line is open. At that point, please state your first name and last initial before posing your question. If your question has been answered, please press star 2 to remove yourself from the queue. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay, so we're going to give you just a moment to post your questions. Okay, so we have quite a few questions, and we're going to start with uh, um, so for Dr. Um, Kassab, um, is there an upper lim age limit to liver resection? Is 80 too old, even if the cancer is confined to one lobe and liver function is excellent? A good question, and the answer is no. All depends on how the patient is functional and nutritional status and so on. So if everything checks, yes, there is still room for resection, even for, you know, 80-year-old patient. Excellent. That's good to hear. That's excellent. And another question, will Keytruda be approved for um, HCC, um, Dr. Um, Kassab? Yeah, so I had some issues with my voice. I couldn't end up by saying that this is really a very exciting time for our patients when it comes to uh, therapy approaches for hepatocellular carcinoma because we really have 
um, uh, a lot of agents are, who are, that are either approved or um, on the merge to be approved. Keytruda uh, is a, an immune checkpoint inhibitor, immunotherapy drug, and it's already approved conditionally in the United States in the second-line setting. And there is another study combining it with another drug called Linvima, which is already approved in frontline. So we're hopeful, um, like Dr. Harding said, that you know the results of those ongoing studies can also offer our patients more treatment options. So we couldn't be excited, you know, more excited than, than ever at this point um, in managing hepatocellular carcinoma patients because of the abundance of good approaches to treat our patients, uh, systemic therapy approaches specifically for those who are not candidates for surgery or transplant or localized therapies. So Keytruda is one of them, and it is conditionally approved in the U.S., and it will uh, hopefully, if the study is positive, Keytruda plus Linvatinib, it will be considered for uh, frontline approval as well. And another question, um, can the um, Bevis system of biosimilar MVASI be discussed? And if you could say what MVASI is. Yeah, so this is a bisimilar to map, um, and it's been used interchangeably. The FDA allowed the bisimilars to be um, uh, tried and, you know, ex uh, changed, you know, uh, in, in different institutions and so on because the concept of them being um, 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 identical almost um, to the original drug has been um, decided at the uh, FDA and NCI levels. So, yes, we do this interchangeably all the time. You can use it. It's called Mvasi. You can use it in, in, in place of bifazizumab um, with a tecentric drug, um, which is the immunotherapy drug. So, yes, you can use the biosimilar in this setting. Excellent. Um, and here's another question for... Dr. Harding, um, we would, would like discussion of Avast and biosimilar MVASI since many hospitals are switching to it. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I think to echo what Dr. Kassab said is that um, biosimilars are, um, are, are, are being used more frequently for many drugs, um, and these are, are drugs that have this same mechanism of action and really are, you know, are, are extraordinarily similar with similar, they're tested and, uh, with, for safety and um, uh, it is, it's not uncommon to see that bevacizumab would be substituted with its biosimilar. In fact, um, in Asia, there was a study called Orient 32 um, that demonstrated um, a, a bevacizumab biosimilar with an anti-PD PDL1 antibody was superior to prior TKIs, um, uh, and, you know, supporting the idea that atezolizumab or atezolizumab and bevacizumab, um, you know, this is more of a generalizable result. Uh, so I'm not concerned by the utilization of a bevacizumab uh, biosimilar or any biosimilar as, as long as, you know, it's being applied um, um, as per, you know, the, 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 the regimens were, as they were defined on the prospective studies. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. And a question from Ms. Bearden. Um, what foods would help with loss of muscle mass? And a second question, how many glasses of foods are recommended for hydration? Okay. So, um, as far as fluid for hydration, a lot of it depends on your weight, but a general guideline is between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Um, there can also be some other things to consider um, when you talk with your healthcare team if um, fluid is something that needs to be um, adjusted for different reasons based on your health course, um, then talk with your healthcare team about that, but that's a general guideline. As far as foods that can help um, reduce the loss of muscle mass, what we look at is a total calorie intake, um, and that, that encompasses um, eating, you know, um, 
enough calories to maintain your nutrition goals, so what your body needs for energy, and specifically focusing on protein as well. Like I mentioned earlier, protein is something that um, there's a higher demand for, oftentimes with liver, liver cancer and with the therapies that you receive for liver cancer. And so protein sources such as um, fish, um, chicken, lean beef, um, if, you know, um, dairy products are also a good protein source. And so incorporating those throughout the day, um, I always tell patients try to include a protein source each time that you eat. Um, but knowing your specific goals, um, talk with your dietitian because your, your goals um, can, be, can be outlined for you a little bit more specifically um, so that you know what you're, what you're aiming for each day. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have a telephone question. Um, if we want to take that now, please. Um, Anna? Yes, ma'am. And just a reminder, star one, if you would like to signal. And also a reminder, please just state your first name and last initial before posing your question. And caller, you may be on mute. Your line is open. Shall we try the second question then? Yes, Hello? Yeah, we'll move to the next caller. Oh, oh there's open. someone here. Oh, yep. Yes, go ahead. Question, Hello? Please. Hello, Me? your question? Yes. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were talking to me or not. Um, I am currently on a clinical trial, uh, which is the Tavozanib Dervamulab. And they are taking me off, even though my um, scans are stable. According to my oncologist, they're very stable. So my oncologist has made the decision to change me to the uh, to centric avastin. If they don't think that the clinical trial medication is working, will tech-centric avastin work better than tavozanib dervamulab? Oh, thank you for that question. Dr. Kassab, would you want to answer that? In a general way, or a Sure, yeah. So in, in general, the decision about, you know, the clinical trial outcome, of course, lies in the hands of the treating um, um, oncologist. But if it seems like they were not convinced you were benefiting from the clinical trial and they switched you to the centric avastin, uh, the centric avastin is the best approach we have at the moment. So it is really um, very promising. And even if you go through clinical trial, we have seen some patients in certain situations, even if they go through through other systemic therapies, they still benefit from this combination. So the combination still has activity even in patients who were treated before. Okay. And another. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Um, thank you. And um, Dr. Kassab, another question for you: Have you seen tumors disappear with Lenvimo treatment? Uh, we have seen that. Um, it is not very common. Uh, it is in single-digit kind of, you know, um, chances, but we have seen it. And I always tell my patients, even if it is, you know, 5% chance of what we call complete remission, you might be one of them. So you would never take any hope from any of our patients. And I always tell them, let's hope for the best um, and plan for the worst. So um, having high hopes will enable you to have, you know, good appetite and, you know, do uh, activi more activities and exercise and so on. So I'm totally for it. And even if it didn't happen with immunotherapy, it could happen with other drugs. So I really um, uh, like um, our patients to have high hopes and good attitude because it really makes a huge difference. Excellent. And this is a, a bit of a long question for Dr. Kaseb, but I think um, we're going to, I'm going to read some of the question and hopefully you can address it in a general way as well. Um, my husband was diagnosed with hepatocellular carcinoma 11 months ago. One tumor of 11 cm centimeters in right lobe, one affected lymph node in the abdomen, and three small nodules in the lungs. He has had two Y9 deembolization procedures and 12 infusions of 10 centric and avastin so far. His main liver tumor has now shrunk to 8.6 centimeters, the lung nodules have disappeared, and the lymph node is almost back to normal size. 
His AFP is now 3.6. Liver enzymes are well within normal range. Though 30 pounds lighter than before, about 167 pounds. His main side effects are low platelets, hemoglobin, and hematocrit. Also a rash running down the middle of his back and arms. Um, fatigue is ongoing. How many infusions are recommended? Is it possible to stop them for a while to allow blood levels to go up and then start again? Will the drug stop working altogether at some point? When looking at a CT scan of the liver, um, how is it possible to determine that the tumor has any active cancer cells left? What will be the first sign the cancer again is again growing? It's a long question. <laughs> I hope um, I hope you can address it again in a gentle way for this participant. Sure. So this is you know a very happy um, kind of you know setting where we get the patients treated with localized therapies or systemic therapy or both, and then you see a very nice response, and then you end up with having to deal with certain side effects because of the uh, continuation of therapy. So this is a very common scenario. So in our mind as treating oncologists, we always have to weigh a risk-benefit ratio. So if we see that the patient benefit has been maximized and the patient tolerance is not as great as before, we do one of two things in that you could discuss with your oncologist, and this is very classic. We all do that. Either give a what we call a treatment holiday so, like, you know, drop in one cycle, um, so give it like six weeks of uh, time to recoup and visit with the dermatologist, um, nutritionist, and hematologist to look into the blood count and give it time to recover. So, you either, you know, could get a treatment holiday after you discuss with your oncologist about your specific situation to make sure things are really cooling off. The other uh, option that we have done also before is uh, maybe to drop one of the drugs that is causing, we think, is causing most of the side effects and continue the other one of the combination as what we call maintenance therapy. So this is, you know, another approach. Third approach is if we think that both drugs are causing significant side effects and the tumor don't look active on scans and the T1 marker is bottomed out and everything, then we can just hold the treatment and get a scan every couple of months um, to uh, carefully monitor the tumors and make sure they are not growing back. Signs are on imaging. You could see the tumors growing or you see new tumors or you see the tumor markers are rising again, but that's why uh, the follow-up every couple of months will be, you know, um, very critical to uh, make sure that um, the tumor is not getting active again. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. I hope that's helpful to our participant. And please take this back to your treating healthcare team. And another question um, for Dr. Harding. Are there any trials you recommend for adjuvant therapy following resection of large tumor in an otherwise healthy liver? Um, so that's a, a great question. Um, you know, I, I think with regard to um, uh, trial recommendations, one thing that I find difficult is that since these are all investigational studies, it's hard to choose a trial over another. And I think it in part comes down to availability and practicality. Uh, and so, um, you know, um, what I would do is work with your provider, you know, to search through clinicaltrials.gov, you know, what might be a reasonable trial for you and determine you know, if that's something that is feasible and perhaps, you know, reach out to the site. So, you know, at the present time, you know, at Memorial, we do not have an open adjuvant trial, uh, but there may be other sites that do, and you can access that through clinicaltrials.gov. In my feeling, you know, if you're a candidate for a trial, it's always worth considering whether you do it or not, because we're always looking to expand um, upon therapies for patients. Uh, Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Kassab. I didn't get my hepatitis B vaccine as a kid. Can I still get get it now? Yeah, so there are certain uh, guidelines for hepatitis B vaccine. So we always start with hepatology consult, our liver specialist, to look into that. And a lot of patients actually qualify for it. So that, uh, again, goes back to, you know, what Dr. Harding was talking about, the importance of multidisciplinary team approach. So I would strongly recommend, you know, to talk to your oncologist and hepatologist because you could um, be a candidate for it and you could get the vaccination, which could protect your liver from any deterioration. 
And then um, this will probably be the last question. Um, what is the treatment for liver cancer when you experience increasing ascites with bloated stomach and have increased weight loss? So Dr. Kassab. Yeah, so um, this could be um, a sign that the liver is not functioning very well. So in these cases, we hold therapy and assess the liver function status carefully. We also do this in conjunction with our liver specialist or hepatologist to maximize our efforts to stabilize the liver functions and make sure the ascites, the fluid in the abdomen is well controlled, the patient nutritional status is stabilizing, so we also get our dietitian on board, of course, and in these cases, we hold therapy until we make sure that the liver is uh, stabilizing and the patient is in good shape to receive therapy, because, because guess what? Some studies actually looked into that in patients who have fragile uh, organ functions or overall um, performance status or liver functions, and um, half of them got treated, half got just supportive care, and believe it or not, those who got best supportive care, just symptom control, no active cancer therapy, lived longer and healthier. Because if you intervene with active, aggressive therapies for liver cancer and neither the liver nor the body um, is ready for it, it actually shortens our lifespan. So uh, we should be very careful in this situation and make sure we get the best team on board to maximize their efforts to um, stabilize our liver, get us stronger and healthier so we can be ready for the next fight. And this question, I don't think I've asked this question. Um, if the, um, I'm going to ask Dr. Kassab, if the original um, HCC tumor was large at 11 centimeters with lymph node involvement, but now after Y90 embolization plus 10 centric Avastin treatments, the tumor has now decreased in size to 8 centimeters, and lymph node is normal. Is resection now possible, especially if the tumor continues to become smaller? That's a great question, and we've seen some cases that actually turn to be uh, resectable down the line if the liver function is, is good. So, um, so we always have to revisit these options that could open up. Um, so surgery consultation would be critical here. Uh, in other situations where, you know, patients start with, you know, large tumor in the liver alone, no metastasis or invasion, and then they respond very, very well, we can even revisit the transplant option if surgery is not possible. So these are great questions and they highlight the importance of the multidisciplinary team. So I would strongly recommend to talk to your oncologist and um, seek a, a surgical evaluation uh, consult so you can discuss this one-to-one. -one. Yeah. I agree with that. I'll just weigh in as well that the multidisciplinary review makes a lot of sense. And in complex cases, sometimes even a second opinion but another DMT might be useful as well, especially if, um, you know, some centers are not transplant centers. So, so, you know, it might be worth doing that. But I would speak openly with your primary oncologist about that. As Dr. Kassab said, they should be able to help you with that. And Dr. Harding, this will be the last, another last question. Um, my mother has been diagnosed with um, HCC. She is not a candidate for surgery and immunotherapy. She was offered radio embolization, but she has many autoimmune issues and is not comfortable doing the DACE or Y90 options. Would you suggest she look into clinical trials? Could you address this, um, Dr. Harding? So I think the broad, yeah, the broad question addresses, you know, is it safe to give it the current immunotherapies in the setting of a history of autoimmunity. And, um, you know, that's an area I think that is still undergoing evolution. Uh, there are some instances where there's what's called an absolute contraindication uh, to um, um, immune-based treatments. And, and that might include patients that have had a prior liver transplant, where there might be a higher risk of a rejection. That might include patients with active autoimmune diseases that require, you know, a tremendous suppression of the immune system already. Um, I, I will note that there are theories that have used immune checkpoint inhibitors in those patients, in those patients that have some degree of autoimmunity, but that may be quiescent you know, that it's all under control, 
Um, and, you know, there was in a, a grouping of solid tumors the ability to do that, like to safely give the immunotherapy, although the rate of toxicity was higher. Now, this was pro retrospective data, like, you know, groups of people putting together their experiences. There are some clinical trials that are looking at immune checkpoint inhibitors in those with autoimmunity. You could search clinicaltrials.gov for that, uh, clinicaltrials.gov for that. In general, if there is an active autoimmunity, I, I, I don't start necessarily with an immune checkpoint blocker um, and, and um, an immune checkpoint inhibitor, I should say, um, but I may refer to a rheumatologist or whoever is managing that autoimmunity to get it under better control, and the risks and benefits of that might change over time. Um, so... Um, in those patients that have a contraindication to immunotherapy, I'm very comfortable using tyrosine kinase inhibitors like lenvatinib, serafinib, cabozantinib, et cetera. Um, I'm comfortable enrolling them on studies that are not trying to wake the immune system up, um, and I'm comfortable doing regional therapies in that co context. Excellent. And I'm going to add just, uh, we're going to, wrap this up, but I do want to ask our speakers if they would just simply give a, like a, a sentence takeaway that they'd like people to, um, to take away from this program, starting with Dr. Kassab, Dr. Harding, and Ms. Bearden. So, Dr. Kassab, do you want to go first, just a takeaway for our participants today? Yes, yeah, so um, we're very, you know, excited um, as medical oncologists, you know, to be treating our patients in 2022. Every year uh, we come back with better news about treatment options and, and clinical trial approaches. Uh, who would have thought that now we're talking about, you know, second line and third line and even beyond in HCC, and as Dr. Harding, you know, alluded to, there is um, tons of other clinical trials uh, in the works as we speak, and every few months we come up with, you know, good news about, you know, other trials and approaches. So um, we, um, I, I, I am really hopeful that even, you know, during this year before our meeting next year that we're going to have better um, um, uh, options for our patients. And at this point, we are enjoying a momentum for hepatocellular carcinoma patients. And um, I'm really hopeful that we were able to deliver the message that um, the uh, team approach to this kind of tumor is the best between the medical and surgical and radiation oncologists and radiologists and dietitians and social workers because this is how we best manage our liver cancer patients. So this is really the bottom line that we all would like you all to get today. Um, try to be managed in a setting where you have multidisciplinary team approach and remember to have always um, high hopes and a great attitude because it makes a difference. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kaseb. And uh, Dr. Harding, would you like to take away yeah, as well? I, I agree. I mean, it's really been an amazing um, several years in liver cancer in terms of advancement. Um, I, I do think that, you know, there's going to be continued um, uh, refinement of how we treat patients with liver cancer uh, with the idea of trying to improve outcomes to improve quality of life. Um, and I think there will be continued extensive clinical trial development across this entire space. And I agree it is a team-based effort. Um, and, um, um, you know, I thank you again for your time today. Well, thank you so much. And Ms. Bearden, do you want to comment as well? Sure. Um, just to reinforce, we've heard several times today about the importance of the multidisciplinary team. And um, I just want to, you know, reiterate knowing how to reach out and understanding, you know, what your treatment plan is, what your goals are. If you have questions about that, talk with your healthcare team so that you feel like you're, you know, completely informed on how to address any side effects and issues that come up um, just to optimize everything that you're going through through this, through this journey and to be as comfortable as possible along the way. Excellent. Thank you. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants for really asking such great questions. You know, we've done this program uh, for a number of years now, and I have to say the questions from our participants have really been incredible, um, very knowledgeable, and very good questions as well. So that really enhances the call as well. So I think the interchange between the participants and our speakers has been just phenomenal on this call. And 
Um, and uh, now I do want to, um, in, in wrapping this program up though, however, I do want to comment that I know that there are many of you still in queue, and we could go on for another hour, but we did say this would be an hour program. We're running over just a little bit, so I just want to comment. For those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question that are in queue and didn't get to ask, and for those of you who have a question that you're thinking of asking, we want all of you to go back to your treating healthcare team with what you've learned from the program today and ask your physician the questions that you want to ask, that you may have asked here, and, and, you know, and see what they say about you. Because remember, they have all your medical records. They know the most about you. Um, and so that's really important to your healthcare team, a really, a really terrific source. So you can see those of you who asked a question today, it's a role play of going back to your healthcare team and asking them the same questions. Even if you've asked them before, ask them again, and ask them over and over again until you have the answers that you need that you're comfortable with. And also, um, I just want to say that you will be getting a survey monkey evaluation tomorrow. And in that evaluation, it's not just, we do like you to fill out the evaluation, but the, the second part of it is we will include any link that we've given to you about clinical trials or organizational resources or anything like that that we think would be helpful to you to have as resources for you in addition to the program today. Also, um, I would not want any one of you to leave this program feeling that you're alone in coping with liver cancer or any type of cancer. I want you to know that you're now part of a community support. You have your healthcare team, you have cancer care, and there's a host of other organizations that um, we will provide for you that are able, that are well-respected and are very credible resources information. We don't want you just to Google something randomly on the internet. We want you to go to well-respected sites that have medical expert medical people reviewing what's on their sites and also that are reviewed quite regularly. Because I think as our doctors have said, things are constantly changing. So the websites have to keep up to date with what's actually happening. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.